6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Nehemiah, chapters 9 through 11. The Bible is full of miracles, many dramatic ones, but it's interesting to notice how that particular drama that we're all familiar with becomes a major emblem or uh, identity piece, if you will, with the God of the universe. It's interesting how that has been elevated to something far more than it would seem on the face of it, miraculous though it was and so on. Anyway, moving on, verse 11. And thou didst divide the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on the dry land. And their persecutors thou threwest into the deeps as a stone into the mighty waters. You know, I'm always amused by the skeptics that say, well, there's a big wind and certain times of the year, this particular region, which they can't identify, by the way, but they say this particular region uh, only had a few feet of water. See, they're asking for a bigger miracle than they record in the Bible. They're, they're saying that the entire Egyptian army drowned in three feet of water? You know, it doesn't quite compute if you follow me. Okay. So anyway, let's move on. Verse 12, Moreover thou lettest them in a day by the cloudy pillar, and in the night by a pillar of fire, to give them light in the way wherein they should go. What is that pillar called? Come on, gang. Shekinah, or Shekinah, or Shekinah, or however you bet. And a cloudy, cloud by day, and a pillar of fire by night. Thou camest down, oh, oh by the way, because we're going to get into this later, while they're wandering the wilderness, the Shekinah was a cloud... During the day, pillar of fire by night. Where was it when the temple was built? Above the ark, in the Holy of Holies. You betcha. That's going to be important too as we get later. Let's move on. Verse 13. Thou camest down also upon the Mount Sinai. See, now it's shifting again at the Ten Commandments. We're now at Exodus 19. And spakest with them from heaven and gavest them right judgments and true laws and good statutes, commandments. And if you're in, in a school situation, you'll have to discern the difference between judgments, laws, statutes, and commandments. They're not the same thing if you want to be academic about it. But as far as you and I are concerned, I think we both understand you're supposed to follow them, whatever they are. Okay. And made us known to them by thy holy Sabbath, and commanded them precepts, statutes, and laws by the hand of Moses, thy servant, and gave us them bread from heaven for their hunger, and brought us forth water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And promised them that they should go in to possess the land which thou hast sworn to give them. So there we have the manna, of course. And we have the smiting of the rock, which happened twice, you may recall. And uh, so on. So just a, a quick summary here of their history. But they and our fathers dealt proudly. Uh-oh. And hardened their necks. And hearkened not to thy commandments. And refused to obey, neither were mindful of thy wonders that thou didst among them, but hardened their necks, and in their rebellion appointed a captain to return to their bondage. But thou art a God ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and for six and not. It's interesting, I can remember when the Ten Commandments movie first came out as a movie, 
uh, we had some discussions with some friends of ours that weren't believers particularly. They weren't, they were, if, if anything, maybe just denominational not, uh, Christians. But uh, they were really stunned by the portrayal in the Ten Commandments, the realization that after all these things that happened, you know, they had all the miracles of the ten plagues, and then they had the death of the firstborn, and then they're on their way out there. And the first little thing, uh, Dathan, you know, organizes a rebellion. We've got to go back to, they want to go back to Egypt. The, the, the people, uh, very common view, couldn't believe that this, this, this people, having seen firsthand these incredible dramatic episodes, would not be totally absorbed with God and, and would be so ready to go back to the bondage of Egypt. And, of course, the Bible portrays them as a stiff-necked people and so forth. But you know what's interesting? As we watch them, and as we look at them maybe critically, we, <laughs> we need to look in the mirror. Because whatever they've seen, we have record of. And on top of that, we have so much more. We have so much more to be thankful for than they did. And um, still, we find it convenient to... Put it on the back burner. And it's maybe, you know, it's item nine on a list of ten. It's not, it should be item one on a list of one is what it should be. Anyway, moving on. Okay, verse 18. Yea, when they had made them a molten calf and said, This is thy God that brought thee out of Egypt and had wrought great provocations. By the way, can you imagine how God must have felt about that? After all this, you know, almost deliberate drama God almost, you know, uh, he's got Pharaoh where he's, you know, he's almost creating the excuse to show himself strong, you know. And, and after this dramatic demonstration that he's the God of Israel and, and he, he succeeds in getting them uh, miraculously delivered through the Red Sea. They're now at Sinai and so forth. And uh, so the minute he and Moses go off from the hill to talk a little bit, <laughs> come down, they're making a golden calf which is a symbol, among other things, of going back to Egypt, worshiping the, the culture and the background that they came from. Astonishing. You know, there, there, there's no way, I think, for you and I to understand the insanity of paganism. There's no way we can understand the bloodshed that's been spilled before idols. Um, it's astonishing. And yet, uh, that's, the, that's, the, that's, that's man's history. Anyway, they, they continue, with, uh, even though they, they went out of their way to provoke God. He says, yet thou in thy manifold mercies. I want you to know, by the way, you notice even in the Old Testament, if you watch for it, it underscores that God is a God of mercy. There is a myth that runs around by the naive superficial reader that the God of the Old Testament is a vengeful God and the God of the New Testament is love and so forth. No, there's one God. He changes not. And we need to understand His whole nature. And not just His, not any kind of uh, casual permissiveness. That's not what His mercy is all about. His mercy is a very passionate love. And the predicament that was solved at the cross was not just ours, it was His. Because He wants to love us, but He can't violate His justice. And so as you really understand that. But as you go through the Bible, especially the Old Testament, watch and realize how it underscores again and again and again that God is a God of mercy. And he, anyway, they continue to praise here, saying, Yet thou in thy manifold mercies forsookest them not in the wilderness. The pillar of the cloud departed not from them by day, 
to lead them in the way, neither the pillar of fire by night, to show them light and the way wherein they should go. Thou gavest also thy good spirit to instruct them, and withheldest not thy manna from their mouth, and gavest them water for their thirst. Yea, for forty years didst thou sustain them in the wilderness, so that they lacked nothing. Their clothes waxed not old, and their feet swelled not. And there's other pastors who say their shoes did not wear out. Forty years! Johnson Murphy, eat your heart out. No, there we go. Moreover, thou gavest them kingdoms and nations, and didst divide them into corners. So they possessed the land of Sihon, and the land of king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, the king of Bashan. Now, those of you that are in a research moods, check out Bashan and the king of Bashan and find out who he was. He was the king of the giants. He was a Nephilim, called a Rephaim in that language. And a very, very interesting background there. Very spooky stuff. These are the unsavable ones. These are the, the Rephaim cannot rise, Isaiah tells us. And that leads a mystery that I have yet to find anyone really to solve. When Jesus Christ is hanging on the cross, as exemplified by the words in Psalm 22, he says, The bulls of Bashan have encompassed me about. What on earth is he talking about? You talking about the cattle from the Golan Heights? No. He's talking about demon spirits of some kind. Spooky stuff if you peel the onion and get into it. But let's move on. Verse 23, Their children also multipliest thou as the stars of heaven. That's a bunch, gang. As the stars of heaven, and broughtest them into the land concerning which thou hast promised to their fathers that they should go in to possess it. A small point, probably debatable, but I'll share it with you so you can't, when you encounter it, won't be surprised. The scripture seems to indicate that the descendants of Abraham are as the sand of the sea and the stars in the heaven. Both phrases are used of the descendants of Abraham. They may be just figures of speech, nothing more, but some scholars suggest the possibility that the sand of the sea are the earthly descendants of Abraham, and the stars of the heaven are the, the uh, uh, faithful that embrace the faith of Abraham. You can support that. Uh, it's more a conjecture, but it's, it's supportable from some passages, but it's uh, uh, splitting hairs perhaps. Verse 24, so the children of Israel went in and possessed the land, and thou subduest them uh, before them, the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gavest them into their hands with their kings and the people of the land, that they might do with them as they would. Now, this of course taught by the conquest of Joshua. You'll discover that the Canaanites are often listed with seven tribes. But they're also used connotatively for the whole bunch. Just as Ephraim is one of the twelve tribes, the term Ephraim is also used as a as a label for the whole northern kingdom sometimes. And uh, so don't be thrown, just like Judah is sometimes used, not just for the tribe of Judah, but Benjamin and Simeon as, in a colloquial sense, or Judah in a broader sense for the whole nation. So remember, it, it depends on the context. But anyway, uh, the Canaanites are used the same way. So, Okay, so, and they took strong cities and a fat land and possessed houses full of goods and wells digged, vineyards and olive yards and fruit trees in abundance. So they did eat and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in thy great goodness. Now when you read that with spiritual insight, you don't even have to look at the next verse to know what follows. What happens when we are filled and become fat and we're delighted in great goodness? That's called abundance. And after abundance comes apathy. And after apathy comes what? Dependence. 
after dependence, bondage. So they're bondage. So it goes on, verse 26. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against thee and cast thy law behind their backs. And they slew thy prophets. God sent them messengers. Instead of receiving them, they killed them. And Jesus even makes reference to this. They slew thy prophets, which testified against them to turn them to thee. And they wrought great provocations. As we look at these people, we're shocked. As we understand the record of their history, we're appalled. And yet we should be careful when we look in the mirror. Because we're guilty of the same thing. Maybe not quite as dramatically, but every bit, every bit is guilty. Therefore thou deliverest them into the hand of their enemies who vexed them. And in the time of their trouble, when they cried unto thee, thou heardst them from heaven, and according to thy manifold mercies, there it is again, thou gavest them saviors. Now, of course, the ultimate savior is included, but he's also using this in a broader sense. He's speaking of the deliverances during the time of the judges, who saved them out of the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before thee. Therefore leftest thou them in the hand of their enemies, so that they had the dominion over them. Yet when they returned and cried unto thee, thou heardest them from heaven, and many times didst thou deliver them according to thy mercies. And that's the echo again and again and again throughout the book of Judges. And of course, it's also the history of the nation as a whole. Verse 29, testifies against them that thou mightest bring them again into thy law, unto thy law. Yet they dealt proudly and hearkened not unto thy commandments, but sinned against thy judgments. Which if a man do, he shall live in them. And withdrew the shoulder and hardened their neck and would not hear. Yet many years didst thou forbear them and testified against them by thy spirit in thy prophets. Yet would they not give ear. Therefore gavest thou them into the hand of the people of the lands. Nevertheless, for thy great mercy's sake, thou didst not utterly consume them, nor forsake them. For thou art, what? A gracious and merciful God. Boy, is that underscored again and again all through the book of Deuteronomy, among other places. Verse 32, Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, the terrible God, and the word terrible there is like awesome. <laughs> I'm reminded, I happen to be reading today, you know, uh, we don't use it much in our language too much, but some people still like speak of the reverend so-and-so, the reverend so-and-so. The word means terrible. And, and you know, and, and, and <laughs> so, uh, fortunately, no one uses that around here. I hope, I hope they don't start. Uh, uh, the Reverend so-and-so. You know, it's, 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 it, if you understand the meaning of the word, it's not complimentary. Anyway, in both respects, what the word literally means, and also, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's uh, God is what's reverend, period. And we now therefore are God the great, the mighty, the terrible God, who keepest covenant and mercy. Let not all the trouble seem little before thee that hath come upon us, on our kings, on our princes, and our priests, and on our prophets, and our fathers, and on all thy people, since the time of the kings of Assyria unto this day. Boy, um, <laughs> I've been skimming through my notes, but we don't need notes. This is pretty, this is pretty, pretty straightforward. Um, the Assyrian allusion here is that it was the next great power after Egypt. We are familiar with Egypt. We've been talking about Egypt, Pharaoh, and so forth. Then came the era of the Assyrians. And so the shadow of the Assyrians were over the whole nation, even up until 721 when the northern kingdom finally gets taken captive. But, so it's idiomatic. It's, in, it's used as a synecdoche, a, a part from the whole or a whole for the part. Verse 33, Howbeit thou art just in all the... 
is brought upon us, for thou hast done right, but we have done wickedly. Neither have our kings, our princes, our priests, nor our fathers kept thy law, nor hearken unto thy commandments and thy testimonies, wherewith thou didst testify against them. For they have not served thee in their kingdom, and in thy great goodness that thou gavest them, and in the large and fat land which thou gavest before them, neither turned they from their wicked works. What's with these people? Verse 36, Behold, we are servants this day, and for the land that thou gavest unto our fathers, to eat the fruit thereof, and the good thereof, behold, we are servants in it. And it yieldeth much increase unto the kings whom thou hast set over us because of our sins. Also they have dominion over our bodies and over our cattle at their pleasure, and we are in great distress. And because of all this, we make a sure covenant, and we write it, and our princes and Levites and priests seal unto it. Now, what's going to follow here is a written covenant. They entered into a covenant at Sinai, obviously, but here they're, entering, they're re-entering, so to speak, and they're going to put this all down, and they're going to swear to it. Is it going to make a difference? Second and third guesses don't count, right? Okay. So let's go to chapter 10 and see what happens here. Now those that sealed it were, and we're going to have a list of names here of people that sealed this uh, covenant. Now these are the sealed were Nehemiah. He's the first one in the, out of the, the list here. The uh, Tershatha, Tershatha, that's a title incidentally. The son of Hakali and Zedekiah and Zariah and Azariah and Jeremiah, Pasher. That's not the Jeremiah of, of the captivity. It's, I believe it's a different one. Maybe Amariah, Malchiah, Hattush, Shebaniah, um, Malak, Harim, Merimoth, Obadiah, Daniel, Ginnathon, Baruch, Meshalem, Abijah, Midjanin, Maaziah, Bilgai, Shemaiah, these were the priests. Okay, good start. And the Levites. Um, we have both Jeshua, the son of Azaniah, Minui, the sons of Henadad, Cadmiel, uh, and their brethren, uh, Shebaniah, Hadajiah, Kelida, Peliah, Hanan, Micah, Rehob, Hashabiah, Zakur, Sherebiah, and any. And, uh, Shebaniah, Hadashai, Bani, and Biniu. Um, again, for us, it seems very remote. Why are these? You know, the, whole, the real point, one of our points to take here is that this is just God keeping records, and He keeps records on each one of us. These happen to be here in the Word. And we're continuing, verse 14. The chief of the people, Parosh, Pahathamoeb, Elam, Zathu, Bani, Buni, Azagad, Babai, Adonijah, Bigvai, Adin, Ater, Hizkaiha, Azur, Hodijah, Hashum, Bejai, Harif, Anathoth. I'm going to come back to that one. Nabai, Magpayash, Meshulam, Hazer, Meshazabil, Zadok, Yadua, Pelatiah, Hanan, Ananiah, Hosea, Hananiah, Hasheb, Halo, Shesh, Pelheah, Shobek, Rehum, Hashabna, Messiah, and Ahijah, Hanan, Anan, Malak, Harim, Bana. You know, you say, Jichek, why are you reading it? You're not pronouncing it right in the first place, and why do that? Well, it's a tough thing because I don't have a lot to contribute here. I'll pick one thing to talk about, but um, 
uh, it's sort of resolved. I'm either going to go through it verse by verse with you, cover to cover, or I'm going to skip. And once I start skipping, where do you draw the line? You see, so I'm just, uh, it seems appropriate to at least make an effort here. But I want to talk about a name that leaps out here, uh, Anathoth. You wonder, what is this about? This has occurred now about three times in these lists. Uh, it came up first in Ezra, it came up before in, uh, in uh, uh, Nehemiah, and it came up again. And uh, it's just, it, it gives rise to an event that occurred in the days of Jeremiah that we should look at. When you think of Anathoth, if you read your Bible out, you meet, the man from Anathoth was Jeremiah. The first verse of the prophet Jeremiah, he was the prophet from Anathoth. And it, it becomes a label of his all through his book. But an event occurs in Jeremiah 32 that when you're reading through Jeremiah, you wonder, what on earth was that all about? It's one of these little tidbits, and I think you've learned by now that behind any of these things, there's usually a discovery. So let me pause for a minute and take a quick look at Jeremiah 32. For those of you following your own Bibles, turn to Jeremiah 32. We're going to go from verse 6 and following for a few verses. Jeremiah is asked to do a strange thing, and of course, by faith, he does it. Jeremiah 32, verse 6. Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came unto me, saying... So notice what he's about to do, strange as it may seem, is something God told him to do. So he does it. Verse 7. Behold, Hanamiel, the son of Shalom, thine uncle, shall come unto thee, saying, Buy thee my field that is in Anathoth, for the right of redemption is thine to buy it. Now understand the picture here. He's got an uncle that owns a piece of property. Jeremiah fully understands that the nation is about to go into captivity for 70 years. That's not a very good thing for the real estate market. You follow me? And so, but God's telling him to go, go buy this. So, buy thee the, my field, that is in Anathoth. Or he's, he's pointing out that Hanamiel, uh, his uncle, is going to come, he's going to try to pawn off this land. Buy thee my field, which is an Anathoth, for the right of redemption is thine to buy it. In other words, he has the right to because he's of that tribe. See, Baron, it's a tribal area, so in order to buy it, he had to be the proper lineage and all that. So he's going to buy it. So, okay. So Hanamiel, my uncle's son, came to me in the court of the prison. See, <laughs> Jeremiah's in prison. They think he's a traitor because he keeps saying you should yield to Nebuchadnezzar's son. Anyway, according to the word of the Lord, and it said unto me, Buy my field, I pray thee, that is an Anathoth, which is in the country of Benjamin. For the right of inheritance is thine, and the redemption is thine. Buy it for thyself. Then I knew that this was a word of the Lord. In other words, God had told him to do that. When his uncle does come and offer it, and he realizes, okay, for whatever reason, God wants me to do it. So he's, he's going to shell out what I, you know, his real money to buy this land that he'll never live to see and may never again. And you know, the concept is that it's down the drain from his point of view. And I bought the field of Hanamiel, my uncle's son, that was in Athoth, and weighed him the money, even 17 shekels of silver. And I subscribed the evidence and sealed it and took witnesses and weighed him the money in the balances. Now, the way this works is they will take a deed for the land. He'll pay the uncle for the title to the land, for the, for the deed. And then on the outside of the scroll, they'll write the requirements to redeem it. And they'll put, put this in a jar somewhere and hide it so that after the 70 years captivity, they can come back and who, his descendants, whoever comes back, they can prove he's entitled can, by conforming to the information on the outside of the scroll, um, they, they, they'll, they'll have this land. 
So he says, So I took the evidence of the purchase, both at that which was sealed according to the law and custom, and that which was open. See, they make two copies. One is sealed and put in a typically a jar and, and hidden somewhere, in a trave or in some special place. And I gave evidence of the purchase unto Baruch, the son of Neriah, the son of Messiah, in the sight of Hanamiel, my uncle's son, and the presence of the witnesses that subscribed the book of the purchase before all the Jews that sat in the court of the prison. Okay, that all sounds pretty good, doesn't it, huh? And I charged Baruch before them, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these evidences, these scrolls, this evidence of purchase, both which is sealed and this evidence which is open, and put them in an earthen vessel that they may continue many days. And that's it. Now, what on, you're going to Jeremiah, it goes on to other subjects now. What on earth is this all about? Now, if you're a normal, well adjusted person, you read that and shrug and move on. But if you've been to one of my Bible studies, you're no longer a normal, well-adjusted person. You realize I have this preposterous viewpoint that every detail in the Scripture is there by divine design. And Paul confirms this. Whatsoever things are written aforetime were written for our learning that we, through the comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. Right? So why is this here? I'm bringing it up, of course, because we're in Nehemiah and the Remnant are returning. They've established the temple. They've established the city of Jerusalem. They're back in business. And among them, we assume, there is a descendant of Jeremiah. And he will dig up these vessels. He'll encounter the evidences, the scrolls. He'll comply with the requirements to prove that he's of the line and so forth. And he owns that land. You follow me? Now, why does God want you to know that? For two reasons. One is to give you a little perception of how they dealt with land. Because, see, the land didn't belong to anybody. It belonged to God. It was assigned by tribe. They were tenant. They really, it technically is what we would classify as a lease. But let's not get into that right now. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Nehemiah. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.